0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Today we are in uh, Exodus chapters 19 and 20, which I know a lot of you already have your Bibles open to that. If you're using one of uh, the Bibles that we provide here, that's page 60 uh, and 61. Uh, and I'm, I'm personally actually very excited about this. I, I feel like I say that every week, but I'm especially excited this week because we're gonna go into the 10 Commandments. And uh, there's a, I mean, there's a reason, right, that these, that these 100 different passages were chosen, right, as the top, top 100 of the Bible, if you can say that. Uh, But each one of these is so foundational to our entire understanding of our faith. But before we dive in, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're so thankful to have the opportunity to approach your word once more. God, we pray that what you would instruct us from your word would come directly by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive what you have been telling your people for uh, millennia. And God, I pray that you would also find ways to apply those to uh, our own hearts and that you would incline our hearts to hear and obey your word. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, let's dive in. Um, Kind of broad broad brush conception of where we are so far is, is we are at the turning point, at the hinge point of Exodus right now. In fact, chapter 19 is largely, largely considered the end of part one of Exodus, and chapter 20 largely begins part two of Exodus. And I'll explain why that is in a little bit, but um, briefly, the first part is God coming and calling his people out of Egypt, right? And then now we're at the now we're at the part where God is very intentionally forming His people along the lines of who they are to be in Him, and providing them the structure and direction and guidance to do that. Part one is getting out of Egypt, and part two is creating them to be a people that can then enter into uh, Canaan, right? So so this there's a real hinge point here, and you'll learn uh, in Scripture, and, and many of you might already know this, that there are some very intentional divisions that are in Scripture that aren't always labeled. There are parts ones and twos and threes that play into each other. But that being said, I'm going to start and we're going to um, we're gonna read and we'll just go through verse 6 this time and then we're going we're gonna to go through it that way. So Exodus chapter 19 beginning at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is a powerful moment in Scripture, because God is being called, I mean, Moses is being called to the mountain of God. And there's some really interesting things. First of all, Sinai did not have a natural water supply. It's called wilderness or desert, right? It didn't have a natural water supply. And we we saw that actually, if if you've been reading through, you would have seen that in chapter 17. And so God's miraculous provision for them, even in that time, is actually really remarkable. Um, Because you can go back and look at the... uh, it's not geography, geological structure of that surrounding region and realize, how in the world did this place support the amount of people that were there? Well, you learn that God provided water through the rock at Sinai, which is again, one of those amazing things that you see uh, when you look back at archeology span or geology or anthropology and you see God's hand at work in a miraculous way. And so they're, they're encamped in the wilderness and they ended up staying put here for a long time. They weren't just briefly at Sinai. They were at Sinai for 10 months and 19 days. That's a long time, especially with that many people to be in a, in a pretty barren place. But what's, what's specifically amazing about this moment and what, what makes us the end of the chapter of the first part of Exodus, right? I told you this that hinge, that, the end of part one, is that um, this is when the promise of God to the Israelites actually finds its fulfillment. Do you remember when I was uh, here with you all was it two weeks ago or so? Uh, when we were in Exodus 3, and we were talking about the promise of God. And the promise of God was that he would bring them out of Egypt, out of captivity. That was part one of the promise. Do you remember what part two of the promise was? Given the land of Canaan. Given the land of Canaan but part two of, of God fulfilling his commitment to them, his first commitment. So part two of the promise, you can actually find it. Oh, uh, it was with the burning bush, when we were discussing the burning bush. This is uh, in Exodus 3, verse 12. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, well, that's done, right? The Red Sea. When, you, when I brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So now they're at part two. They've been brought out of Egypt. Remember we talked about that, that, that worship of God being the fulfillment. Now you will serve God on this mountain. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing that promise of God kind of fulfilled. They're now at the mountain of God promised prepared to worship him. And so, um, and one other thing I want to touch on here that we touched on a little bit with the, with the Passover, the Pesach, is what God describes in verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. I mentioned the, the word Pesach, correct, correct my pronunciation, Sarah. Pesach. Pesach yeah, okay, thank you. Um, I'm, no, no I, no, I do appreciate that, because I do want to have the right pronunciation. Um, you know, that word can mean hopping, we talked about this, that word can mean limping. That word can also, um, is also very closely associated with the word uh, for hovering, and so I described as, the Passover not only being that God passed over the land, but one other way that people have interpreted that as God is at the same time passing over and protecting his people like an eagle protects uh, its young, right, with the idea of a wing covering over and protecting. And you actually see that in some, um, in some of the symbols of ancient Israel. And, and we see that in the Psalms too, that God describes himself as a, as a mother bird, as an eagle, uh, covering and protecting his people. Uh, you see that in, in actually in Matthew 23. I didn't think about that. Uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus laments over his people, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, yet you were not willing. Right, that idea of God wanting to gather and hold on to his people. And you see God describe himself in that same way here, which is a phenomenally pastoral thing when, you, when you're actually seeking God to know uh, we describe that, we teach little kids, right? Like God's got the whole world in His hands. You know, that concept of He covers you. I remember I went to this one retreat and I talked about, um, you know, kind of surround, when you're doing a prayer, like surrounding another person's hands and your hands as you pray with them to symbolize God's covering and protection, right? I mean, that's that concept here, uh, which is, which is a, a wonderful thing. So, um, now therefore, and then here we get into the covenant. Now therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my co- If you o- will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured perception, uh, possession. You guys know covenant theology. We've talked about that, right? Like God, God works with the people in these covenants, right? We had the uh, Adamic covenant with Adam, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Noahic covenant, which I think was before that. And then, no, after that, and then you have this... Um, before, because um, it was Genesis 6. And, then, and you have now the Mosaic Covenant, and all covenants have a condition. You guys hearing me when I say that? Like, it's not, we like to call, we like to talk about unconditional love, right? You should have unconditional love. Uh, we like to talk about the unconditional promises of God, right? Well, that's not technically true. It's, it's just not, it's not technically true. Um, it feels good and it's nice, but it's not technically true. All of God's covenants except for the Noahic covenant in Genesis 6, all of God's covenants have a condition to them. They all have a condition to them. And scholars think that the, one, the covenant with Noah didn't because animals can't keep a covenant and they were involved in the, in the covenant. Um, but, so that's the bad news, right? All of God's covenants have a condition that you have to meet. In this case, it's obey my commandments. You guys hear me when I say this? That's, that should be a little unsettling because it is. However, however, one of the great fulfillments of the coming of Christ and the promises of that is if you look back at every covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament that had a condition, God also himself fulfilled those conditions for us. That's the comforting part. In fact, every time God made a, pro- a covenant and said, these are the conditions that you have to fulfill, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those specific conditions for us, you hearing me? That's good news. That's why we call it good news, right? Like, good news is not good news if there's not bad news, right, which is, you know, hey, if you obey my law perfectly, everything will be fine for you. It's like, well, okay, you know, I can do that until about 6.30 this morning when my son gets up, you know. And, you know so it's, but the good news is that, is that Christ came right, uh, Paul talks about as him fulfilling the law. You guys hearing me so far? So again, it's not that God's, not that God's covenants are technically unconditional, because they're not. It's that he fulfills those conditions for us. And that's a big trend that we'll see. You know, because we still have uh, the Davidic covenant to get into, and then the new covenant to get into. Um, so anyway, so this is, this is kind of the mention, and this is actually kind of God establishing his covenant in specific form with the Ten Commandments. And notice this too. And I, 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 There's some themes, right, that we talk about over and over again because they're important in the Old Testament. One of those is, is in this uh, concept of them being a treasured possession among all, among all peoples for all the earth. You shall be to me, verse six, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is what he tells Moses. I always thought... And this was this is actually how a lot of people think of Yahweh um, as an eth, you know ethnocentric God or a God that's specifically for this particular. Have you heard about this especially for believers? Like God, this is God. It's tribalism. God is the God of this specific tribe of people, and therefore He has chosen them as His treasure possession. Have you guys ever heard this line of thinking before? And then, but there's all these other gods for all the... You, you have, because we live in a, in a pluralistic society. But you know, but then there's different gods for the Buddhists, you know, and there's different gods for the, you know, like everybody kind of has their own god. And um, most people say, and because there's many gods, therefore there's none, which that's a leap. Um, it's you know, it's, it's it's illogical leap, but there it is. Well, that was actually never. Um, that was actually never Yahweh. What God did with the Israelites is he, they, he chose them as a people to kind of be his beachhead for their sake, but also for the sake of the whole world. Right? And think about this logically. Like he's establishing, he chose them to be his, um, not beachhead, he chose them to be his, what was it vanguard, and establish a beachhead of his presence on earth. You guys follow me a little bit? Let me, let me explain that a little bit more. Um, if you're God, right? Like you're, which you can't, really conceptualize, but if you're God and you want to communicate and save this people, you have to interact with them in some way, right? Like you, you have to find some medium by which to reach them, right? I mean, how else do you, what else are you going to do? Um, and so one of the best ways to establish that medium is, is clearly it's one of the best ways because he did it, is to find a particular group of people. And by the way, God goes on to say, um, that that he did not choose them for anything that they did. They were not chosen because they were special, like, you know, the best people on earth. That's not why he chose them. That's very clear. He just chose them just like he chooses you and me who are not the best people on earth, right? We're just not, Um, and that's okay. But God chooses particular people and says, I'm going to choose you for your sake, but also for the sake of everyone around you. He establishes them as a beachhead that would then go out. The idea was to then spread God to everyone around them, right? That's why they're a nation of priests, like they were, the, they were the priesthood, was so that God could choose them as a particular people. And the idea was that they would exhibit, they would be witnesses for him because of what he's done for them, that by their transformed lives, you know, people would be drawn to God and say, wow, you live and look and act differently. Therefore, you must know something I don't or have something I don't. Does it sound familiar? Right. This is something that should resonate with all of you who are Christians. This 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 concept of God choosing a particular people that they would um, proclaim His witness, that they would show by their life and deeds, that they would actually intercede for the rest of the people. You guys ever do intercessory prayer? You pray for others. That they would intercede in prayer for them. This was the con- Now, did Israel do this perfectly? You know, or did they end up being really kind of anti? Everyone else. I mean, read Ezra and Nehemiah. They get really isolationist and xenophobic. But the the idea was they were supposed to be this this nation that would be a beacon of light to the entire world, um, just like we're supposed to be. And in fact, Peter in First uh, Peter chapter two verse nine references this very text with this concept when he's talking to Christians. He says, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God." that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So this blessing that was bestowed on, right, on the Israelites is now one that's given to the church. Y'all follow me so far? Um, so as you know, I've told you this before, but my, my grandmother's side all the way up has been Episcopalian probably since the Reformation. Um, but I, I'm a relatively new, right? So, but I can't claim cradle Episcopalian because my parents weren't. Um, so not that that gives me a pedigree, um, it doesn't. Um, but that being said, what I've heard, and I wasn't around the Episcopal Church at this time, so I can't speak to this, but I heard that there was a point in our history where uh, being an Episcopalian kind of became a members only club that was not focused on evangelism. That was, that was kind of a, you know, it was a, it was a blue jacket sort of thing where if you were an Episcopalian, you were better than everyone else. And so evangelism wasn't a priority in in the Episcopal Church. Is that true? Can somebody speak to that? Would you say that that's, a, that's general, but that, that's kind of true? Not bad. Not bad? Okay, good. So you can speak to that a little bit. Um, so, you know, and, and because of that reason, you know, I come from a more, I want to throw up air, air fingers, I think that's, that's old. Um, but, you know, I come from a more evangelistic background and our conception of what faith is. It was like, well, of course you tell people. You know, like, well, of course you share. Like, why would you not? Um, and so to come into a church where we're kind of rediscovering the concept of evangelism in the last several years is is very interesting to me and enlightening, but it goes to show that what we kind of did as Episcopalians we took our our treasured possessions because our prayer book is a treasure, our our um, our history is a treasure. I mean, it all like like you know we like there we have so many riches in our tradition, but we did kind of what the Israelites ended up doing, which was you know we were God's treasured possession, and so then you know, we became our own treasured possession. Does that make sense? Instead of doing the out, you know, completing the cycle. Does that make sense everybody? Like we, 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 there was a point where we stopped going out anymore and inviting people in. So, um, and that's just, again, that's my humble understanding of it. So uh, it's really exciting for us to be in this time of saying, hey, we have something great, you should too. Which by the way, you guys do with everything else in your lives, right? If you see a good movie, do you tell people about it? Do you wanna share that with people? If you enjoy a good book, you know if you if um, you know if there's a, a good you know anything right a good play uh, a good lecture series right you want to tell people about it we do that with everything else in our lives we should also do it with the with the other things we cherish right you'll know, follow me so far it's it's just perfectly natural and normal for us to do that so um, anyway so that was God's call to His people and it's 4:20 and we're six verses in the first chapter so we're going to move um, verse seven. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the, of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Do the people, do the people hear God speak? Do the people who hear God speak? What do you guys think? Well, they're What's that? They're going, to. they're going to. Yeah, they're going to. And so I hear a lot of yeses and nos, and there's some good reason for that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The people do, in fact, hear God's voice, and we're going to get into that in a second. They do hear God's voice. Whether or not they understand the words that He's saying, or whether or not it sounds like thunder to them, like it's so booming that they can't, right, if I go over there and I crank that bad boy up, you're gonna hear something. It just might not be uh, articulated very well. Um, They hear something. They do hear God's voice, and God's doing this so that it's not this conception of, you know, Moses goes up, has this encounter with the Lord, creates this religion, and comes back down and says, see what God said. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's not what's happening here. There are witnesses to this. There are other phases where there are prophets go off by themselves into a cave or onto a mountain and privately hear this, you know, this thing from God that they come back and create a religion around. That does happen, right? That is, that is a pattern in human history. That is not what's happening here. God has been very visible within this whole time, purposefully. Do you all hear what I'm saying? Like, like it's not just a matter of private revelation, which is, by the way, how cults start, right? I got a, speci- I got a special word from the Lord that nobody else got, and you should all listen to me because I have that special connection. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's pretty much how these things go. And then it turns into, and now I want all, all of your you know, power and wealth and wives and everything. Like right, like, I mean, that's, that's standard fare for a cultist. That's not what's happening here. All right, let me take a break because I've been rattling. Um, do you guys have any, any comments or thoughts or questions at this point? Yes. I don't think I've ever appreciated that everybody else could hear Yeah, there's never this conception that people actually could hear um, his voice or, or uh, you know, yeah, I mean, but neither had I actually, because I think I think typically in movies or whatever else, you know, it's pictured that they, um, you know, that's just something that happens and then he brings down the tablets, right? That was the, that was the concept. It wasn't, it wasn't as um, communal. Verse, uh, let's do the second half of verse nine. When Moses told the words of of the people to the Lord, the Lord said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Which, you know what that means. Um, That's not... That's not, don't hold somebody's hand. Um, so, all right, so there's this idea of consecration here. And there's a real formality to their approach to God. Like, there's a real form, you know, formality approach. There's a, you go consecrate, you wait three days, you abstain from relations, you, you purify yourself, you, you consecrate yourself to the Lord, you focus on prayer, and then you can come up to God. Um, and that might seem like, okay, well, what's the significance of that? Well, one, Approaching God's a formal thing, often at least it was at least it was for them. Now the reason is you know the reason that as Christians, it's a little different is because uh, we we all have direct access to the Father through Christ where they had to go through priests, right like our mediator is Christ, so we actually we actually have a much closer connection, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel a sense of formality when approaching God, right? We talk about this balance that we have and I think Again, Episcopal Church is great. I think we strike this balance very well of the eminence of God, which is God is your friend, because Scripture calls Him that. He is near you, Holy Spirit is within you, Spirit of Christ surrounds you, right? Like there's this nearness of God, the eminence, with the transcendence of God, which is the, we get on our knees, you know, as we're able during our liturgy, right? When we, when we approach to receive communion, you know, it's, it's not a casual observance. Do you all see what I'm saying? It's this wedding, it's this real wedding of the two um, that we need to consider. So, um, and this is also another part of it that we have to realize is, we're gonna talk about idols in a second, but one of the things that people did with their household gods and their idols, they would touch them. And you ever heard of like rubbing Buddha's, was it his belly? Was that the idea? You know, you touch them, you kiss them. You know, you, you snuggle them with the idols. You know, there was this real familiarity that people had. Um, they had to feed them. Um, but, you know, but, but there's this concept of God, you know, God's, God is not to be handled. Right? God's not to be handled in, in that particular fashion. You all follow me so far? Now, if you're a mystic, we can talk about all of that another time. I'm not going to get into it. We don't have time. And I don't understand it. So, um, but so anyway, there's boundaries and there's limitations and there's a consecration process for them so they know this is a big deal. You know, like prepare yourselves. Um, and there's respectful boundary markers that are placed around the mountain. Because, I mean, what is holiness? We talked about this. What is holiness? Do you guys know? Give me a, give me a basic thought. Like what is holiness? Close to, God. close to God? Yeah, being close to God makes you holy or you have to be holy and you have to be holy to be close to God. What else do you guys think holiness is? Because this is a big concept of this passage. I think holiness. Absence of sin. sin. Yeah. Holiness is often described as righteousness. Separation from the divine. Separation from the divine. I would say say holiness is the divine. So to be unholy would be separation from the divine. Um, Yeah, holiness is its purity, its uniqueness, its righteousness. These are all concepts in and holiness, right? I mean, again, I love the book of John because it gives us light and shadow as ways to depict the sort of thing, right? If light is holiness, you can't have darkness in light. It just, it's, not, it's not actually possible, right? Like you can't, you can't do that. You can paint a black dot on a light bulb, but that's not the same thing as actual darkness, right? Like a shadow cannot exist. And so there is this pure, again, God is, by setting these rules, God's also explaining who he is. Does that make sense? Like, he's, like there's all sorts of laws that God establishes that might seem weird and arbitrary to us, but God's, God's using everything he can to communicate who he is. He's using nature. He's using the direct spoken word. He's using his rules and commandments. All of these things function to say, you know, this is who I am, All right? And we, we do this with each other a lot. There's a lot of ways that we learn who each other are. Like, you can tell me who you are, but I'm also going to observe you. I'm also gonna observe you in, not only just in our interactions, but in your interaction with other people right? There's, there's all sorts of dimensions. Um, if you set rules and regulations, for example, if you have authority over me, I'll know who you are by what you declare. Do you all see what I'm saying? It's this full orbed way that God teaches us who he is. And, we need to, and when God tells us something, you pay attention, right? Especially when we get into the laws, it's really easy for us to dismiss them. When God says something, you listen. Um, somebody said this, I thought it was really good. When somebody tells you who, you, who they are, believe them. Uh, it's like that's a, that's a really good point. Or when someone shows you who they are, believe them, right? Uh, approach, the God, approach God in the same way. So let's go on to verse 19. Uh, yeah, we're gonna make it tonight, that's good. Oh wait, uh, all right, so we're on verse 16, okay. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up, the, up like the mountain of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Um, they heard him. They heard his voice as thunder. Yeah, they heard, but... But, they, no, but the point is they heard his voice and likely as thunder. Now it doesn't say, it really, if you look at it clearly, it doesn't say specifically whether or not they heard the words that were being said or if they just heard the words as thunder, like I was saying, like if you turn the volume all the way up on a PA system, you hear booming, you might not make out the specifics, which I'm not gonna do that as an experiment right now because it could do feedback and that'd be bad. Yes, Paul. Yeah, most, yeah, and so again, I mean, this is, again, this is the question in the Bible. This is the question that commentators have wrestled with is, did they hear any specifics or just a loud, thundering voice? Because God was intentional. He says the reason, look, look back at verse 9, his reason for doing it. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So there is, there is this concept of a back and forth happening. Whether or not they heard what God was saying specifically or just heard that there was a back and forth is different. But there is, there's an actual dialogue happening where you can tell that there's a dialogue. It's not just a man shouting into thunder. There's a back and forth. Whether or not they heard the specifics, is un, I would say it's unlikely they heard the specifics based on what we're reading. But they could tell that it was a dialogue. It wasn't just a man screaming into a storm. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like it wasn't, Because they've seen storms before. They've seen... Maybe not this, because if you look at the smoke, you always think of God like at the top of the mountain, like we would think of mountains with smoke around surrounding the peak. Look, smoke is billowing up like a kiln. Did you read that? Smoke is actually billowing up like from the base of the mountain like a kiln. That's a supernatural thing. People have tried to say, oh, it was a volcano. Um, One, you think that there would be some fallout from that if that was just a volcano, right? That there would be some effect that would be troubling to them. But two, I don't know any volcanoes that smoke from the bottom, you know, that primarily smoke billows from the bottom and comes down from the top. Like that's, you know, that's, that's not typically how that works. Now you can see some, sometimes heavy smoke spills out over the top and goes down, but that's not what's happening. You all see what I'm saying? Like, it's supernatural. Thank you, it's supernatural. You, naturalistic explanations will come short, uh, every, they just will, they'll come short every time. Um, and God often, by the way, appears in a storm. We, we talk about theophanies, right? Appearances of God. God often appears as a storm. This is a storm theophany. Uh, you remember back in Genesis 3, 8, that Adam and Eve walked through the garden in the cool of the day? A lot of people actually interpret that as wind of the storm. It's not just the cool of the day. Uh, the more, I would say the more common Hebrew phrasing there, it mostly means the wind of the storm. God often comes, yeah, I know, I'm blowing your minds because you've never read that before, have you? It's always, it's always interpreted in one particular way. But I would say that actually fits more of the evidence of culture. It's not just an afternoon stroll through the garden, which is what we like to think about, but it's the presence of God coming in power. Um, and you see this all the time, how God, especially in the Psalms, uh, presents himself as this powerful storm. I mean, if you ever, have you ever done that when like a hurricane's coming or anything like that, and, or just a large storm and, and prayed? in the storm, not to the storm, but in the storm, and conceptualize God as the storm, that's like, that gives you a healthy respect for God. And there's a reason, right? Whenever he presents himself, we talked about the theophany of fire in the burning bush, right? Whenever God presents himself in a certain way, you listen. Whatever concept he's seeking to present himself as, you listen, right? What does it mean that God is the storm? That God is bigger than the storm, right? Right? Um, Anyway, and I can, give you, I can give you verses about storm theophanies, but that just sounds like a... The fact that you all are here means that you do find this stuff interesting. If I were to say that to the average person, they'd be like, good, Bible verses about storm theophanies. Like, I'm in. Um, sorry, sometimes, right, you say things and you're like, yeah, that sounds nerdy. Um, all right, so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and it is interesting that he has to be very clear not to touch the mountain. I mean, people are going to be curious, right? Like, you're going to be, like, you, you have to set rules sometimes, because otherwise people will be curious. I want to see God. Okay. Do you? Think about that. Um, I want to, you know, I want to uh, be like God. I want to be up from his perspective, right? I want to be, be up on the mountain and assert power for myself. It's not a good idea. Uh, it's really, it's just not a good idea. Uh, all right, so... Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them that is again, speaking of what we were just talking about, Moses is like, "You already warned us, and God's like, just tell him again, you know like like Moses, I know them better than you like you know because right because warning people who are hard headed once doesn't always doesn't always do the trick, but it's a very serious thing um, All right, let's get into the the part I'm most looking forward to, which is the Ten Commandments. Let's go to uh, chapter 20, verse 1. We're actually just going to, we're going to read straight through, 221. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You guys got all that, right? All right, well, let's call it. For, no, I'm kidding. All right, we got a few things that I want to cover here. I mean, I know this is very familiar to us, but there's, there's a lot of depth in the way that we conceptualize it. I mean, we could spend, we could spend a lot a lot of hours on the Ten Commandments and breaking down each commandment. In fact, one of my favorite books is called, um, I think it's called The Doctrine of Christian Ethics by this theologian named John Frame, he's a philosopher. It's this thick. And what the book is, all it is, is the Ten Commandments parsed out and applied. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of words written about this. And I'll tell you why, why that makes sense and why that's actually a good thing in a second. But first, let me just tell you, um, let, me, let me get into the kind of more broad uh, brush stuff. Um, this, have you, have you heard about this, the idea of the, this covenant of God being modeled after ancient treaties? Is this familiar to you? Okay, right, so. Um, pardon me. The, um, so there were these Hittite, um, was it suzerain and uh, vassal treaties that they found in the ancient world around this time that are structured very similarly to this. And um, I'm gonna try to spell this right. Uh, one of those is an A, um, I'm pretty sure. And then vassal. Now this, is, this was an agreement between um, a more powerful authority and a lesser authority, right? So, for example, if your kingdom was conquered, the conquering king would have this relationship to the conquered kingdom. Y'all follow me so far? Or, yeah, you can think of governmental structure. It's like, um, you know, in the ancient world, you had obviously the, you know, the Caesars in the, the Greek world, and then you had the, you know, the governors of different provinces, right? And this would be kind of that relationship. There, these are each kind of kingdoms, or they have their own fiefdoms, or whatever, want, whatever particular term you want to call it. And this is kind of the the larger, more powerful person in the relationship. Um, The treaties that were made were actually had a very specific structure to them. And you actually can find that structure in some of these in the Old Testament, but specifically here. They had a preamble. And I've actually seen this, by the way, what I'm about to show you, there's about three or four different conceptions of this exact thing. I'm going to give you the one that's most common. Um, but you had your preamble. And this was, this identified the giver and the recipient. This identified who I am and who you are, right? So for example, here it says, verse two, "I am the Lord your God. Okay, that establishes the relationship. Um, next, historical prologue, or you can just call it the prologue. This part always dis- like this part was always um, descriptive of the relationship, the past relationship, that justified what's happening here. You follow me? Like this is this is who we this is who we are, and this is who we are to each other. You all follow me? So, for example, here it says, "This is a, this is a reminder of the relationship." And in verse two, the second half of it says, "So I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt." You all follow me? The pattern here. So again, we have pro- historical prologue. Um, then you have stipulations. Uh, this is basically. Here are the rules of keeping our agreement. Like this is, this is how this relationship is structured, right? It's the structure of the relationship. Um, and then you have, well, you have, and there's different ways to go about this uh, as, as far as like how to put these things. Um, I, I like this conception of it. And then you have blessings and curses. And the blessing is, if you do these things, you will prosper. If you don't do these things, there will be consequences. Like this is a formal treaty. You all hear me when I say that? like This is a formal treaty is what we're ha- what's happening here. Um, and then some of them will have a list of witnesses, like you know here's who's present to the covenant. Um, and then some of them will have a, uh, forget the technical term here, but uh, per- what's called perpetuation. Like uh how long is this applicable or continuation is another way i guess to put it so um this would be who is this for right like is this is this just our generation is this as long as you remain subject to me do you see what i'm saying like how long is this agreement and there's always there's always blessings associated with the agreement right but do you, do you see how this is kind of a formal contract here that's that's i just want i just want you all to be aware of that this isn't just god comes down and says here's my top 10 most important laws. You know, like that's, that's actually, that's how we think of it. There's, a, there's so much more to that that we're going to cover in 17 minutes. Um, but anyway, first thing to notice, it's, it's a treaty, right? This covenant is, is a treaty modeled after a Hittite treaty. Um, and so, and we, do, we actually do this, right? Like sometimes when we're talking to our kids uh, or have preamble, hey, I'm your dad. Um, you know, if you, if you're, especially if you're a guilting parent, right? Like, here's what I've done for you. Like, how could you do this to me because of what I've done? You all hear me so far? Um, stipulations, you know, like, uh, and here's the rules, so follow them. And if you do them, for Gabriel, you'll get a cookie. You know, if you don't do them, you're going in time out. Um, you know, and, and perpetuation is basically as long as you're under my roof. Do you all hear what I'm saying? Like, this is actually a very normal human structure to talk about things if you, if you break it. You, you do this. Um, everybody does this. I don't think a lot of people make that connection. Um, so, anyway, and we, and we, again, we see this in the, in the Ten Commandments. Stipulations are the rules. Blessings, curses. We see one of those in um, honor your father and mother, so that it may go well with you in the land. Right? Like that's that's a blessing that would happen. Um, curses. There's also a lot of those. Or, or you could look at this one. Um, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see how that's a blessing, curse thing happening? And that's also a continuation. All right. it's enough on that. Um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, one other way that, just broad strokes, I want you to think about this. So one way to think of it is as a, is as a treaty. Second way I want you to think of it as as the Constitution of Israel. Y'all follow me so far? This isn't just again the top ten laws. This is a this is a document that establishes national identity. It's a different thing. This is this is their Constitution. It's it's a larger thing. Um, it's, it's not just a section of like, codified law is, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, and so, and that's why you can, we're going to get in a second about why you can derive a lot of particulars from these general laws. You all follow me so far? Um, in fact, let's talk about that. The paradigmatic, yes. In reality, when, he, when God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, He's identified. Party us, and they are Jews. He's being very specific. Mm-hmm. I brought you, you particular people, out of Egypt, and therefore, that's the balance that mm-hmm. Yeah, he's being very specific. Yeah, No, absolutely. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, um, I mean, God technically has claim over them, right? Because anything you create, you own. I mean that's kind of how we conceptualize it, right? Like if you if you paint something, unless you're commissioned to you know, unless you're commissioned to do it, you own your work, right? Whatever you make, you own. And that's a very general big generalization. So God oh you know, has that, but He's also saying, also I have been good to you. Now you can say, again, I would not take that and say, Therefore, you all can use obligation on your children to make them obey you, like that's, or guilt. Like that's not what's happening, primarily. I think a lot of it is that God is saying, look, I'm trustworthy and I love you. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's not just guilt like, do what I say because you owe me. It's, I love you and you can trust me because I have done this for you. This is who I am. Does that make sense to you guys? Think about it differently. Um, it, it, it's a different way to think about it, but it's, I believe that's how he's trying to uh, express himself. Now, this is very important. And I want you to catch this. Ancient law is different than modern law. Modern law, the way that we approach the law, and I, I realize there's at least one lawyer in here, so I'm gonna be <laughs> treading carefully. My, my understanding of modern law is that you try to codify everything that you can possibly codify, so, you know, fix every loophole, and be as specific as possible in many situations. Like, like that, you, that when you approach the law, you, are, you try to create a structure that is as specific as possible. For example, when I'm you know, <clears throat> looking at the Florida administrative code and the Florida statutes for child care center, for example, uh, you know, it's, it's, like it's clear and it's specific, and you follow it all the way down the line. You all follow me so far? And we approach the law in, in this way, because, and you know we approach the law in this way because people try to find loopholes. And a loophole is really just, hey, I know this goes against the principle of the law, but you didn't say this specifically. Do y'all see what I'm saying? All, this, right, this is how we approach the law. It's also how children approach the rules. Um, I remember when I was a youth director in my former parish, we had, we had this roof that was really easy to climb on in church. And every time I explained a game, it became a joke because no matter what the game was, at the end I would say, and you're not allowed to get on the roof. And if I ever forgot to say, you're not allowed to get on the roof, guess what those suckers would do? they would get right on that daggum roof. And then they would say, you didn't say you couldn't get on the roof. This, it became a game, um, fun game. Uh, but so that's how we approach the law, right? And so if you, but if you approach ancient law the same way, you're missing the whole concept. Here's why. Ancient law is paradigmatic, paradigms. It is, here are general principles out of which the judges, the particular judges, and we, our law kind of does this, um, not as freely, the particular judges will interpret these laws specifically to the context, and they can mean a wide variety of things, but it's, it's more principle-driven. Like you could not, in ancient law, get away with a the loophole. There was no such thing. For example, um, one of the laws is, you know, if you, uh, you know, say you steal or you kill a neighbor's ox or a donkey, you have to make restitution. You couldn't go to the ancient law and say, well, it was a goat. Therefore, you didn't say. Do you all hear what I'm saying? That's actually a big deal. And it it actually affects how we look at the entire Bible, and here's why. Um, When you look at some of the ways that people have tried to change, and I'm not gonna get into specifics here, have tried to change the way the church has conceptualized what's sin and not sin, many of the arguments I've read, and this can be a variety of topics, many of the arguments I've read have approached Scripture from the modern conception of law. Well, they're saying, well, you said this, but you didn't say this specific instance or this specific scenario or this case. Do y'all follow me so far? You know, you said, you know, you said, um, I really don't want to get into specifics actually. Um, it's just, I mean, I will at another time, just not in nine minutes and I haven't touched a commandment. So, but, but do you see what I'm saying? Like how we approach that is very important. Like. There is a scriptural way of draw, like you are supposed to be able to apply principles to, this, like, to your life specifically. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Like that's, that's part of this. There, was no, there wasn't a loophole. There was a right way and a wrong way of doing pretty well everything. Now there ends up being 10 commandments and I think it's what, 613 laws? Can 613 laws cover every situation and scenario? They never intended to, right? Do you hear what I'm saying? That's that's very important for us to think about. Um, now, can that get dangerous? You know, when you have your own willy-nilly, you know, interpretation of the law. Sure, that's why the church has always has uh, always supposed to been supposed to have been the safeguard of that to make sure that the interpretation doesn't get so individualistic and off track. You can justify anything. Y'all hear what I'm saying? This this balance here. Um, so yes, all of the law can be summed up in um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. That is the summary of the law. But God didn't leave it there. Because one, that's such a broad interpretation. That's why I'm always hesitant with this whole God is love, period. Let's not look at what that means, and let's just extrapolate off of that. Because that's so general, you can, set, you can, make, you can make that anything you want. Right? You can. And people do. But you also don't look at it from the specificity of, if it doesn't say, therefore, I have license. There's a tension there. You guys follow me so far? I know that's like there's there's a lot of implications that will if you actually think about this for a while, um, you'll realize that there are there are a whole lot of implications here. But we don't have time to do that because I haven't touched Commandment one. So. Um, But the reason, guys, I I have to say one more thing. Um, The reason that the specificities are so important is because they do allow you to get at least a basic concept of who God is that you can extrapolate from. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, at least you know. Like God, for example, when he says in the Old Testament you can't wear clothes made of two different kinds of fabrics, well, God's telling, you know, God's reminding them of the importance of being pure and not mixing religions with other people. Do you see what I'm saying? You see who he is. So you need... Freedom to interpret, but you also need specificities. And I'm probably the only one who's nerded out about that. So that's five minutes of time. But I, I really like that is a big deal when you look at how to interpret scripture. Is ancient law is different in the, than the way that we look at modern law. And if you're looking at the Bible for loopholes, you're doing it wrong. Well, number one, obviously, right? Your heart's in the wrong place because you're because you're because you're you're trying to yeah you're trying to get away with something. You know what's wrong, right? You know what's wrong. God's put God's written the law. Bible says that God has written the law on our hearts, right? Um, which is actually what uh, Jean Piaget found when he was studying kids. He found that kids, um, you know, kids develop rules for their little games they play, right? Their little games. He found that with kids, they would all, they all behaved by certain social rules before they could articulate what they were doing. So they, they behaved with fairness before they could actually articulate the rules of, you know, what fairness is. So that God has written the law on our hearts, right? Like the, that's, that, so we're, we're aware of these things, however, our hearts are also perverse and corrupted, and therefore we do need some specific reminders, because otherwise we can, do you, do you all see what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's a little convoluted, but, I mean, that's life, guys. Um, all right, now we're going to blow through Ten Commandments and, very quickly. Verse uh, Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, That one's, I mean, that one's kind of clear, right? Don't worship anybody else ahead of God. Um, Don't. Now, whether or not the Israelites believed that other gods existed at this point is unclear. They've they've later figured out definitively that there is only one God. Um, But, you know, God's like, I'm your guy. Um, Sorry, that sounds disrespectful. I apologize for that. Let's move on. Counterfeit gods here a lot at this church. The idea that, you know, yes, you don't worship you know, Asherah or Baal or you know like any of these other gods, but you worship but you do worship um, you can worship your children, right? You can make them be the ones that direct your whole life. You know, like your happiness rests on their happiness, that's a good way to think of it, right? If your happiness is contingent on their happiness, they're too important to you. You know, your spouse, you can worship your spouse. If you're, if you cannot be happy unless your spouse is happy, like if you're not allowed, you feel like you're not allowed to be. Your spouse is your is is in too high of a place. You should love your spouse and care for your spouse, and you should you know it should bother you that they're unhappy, right? Like that's not good. It's not like you're like I don't care, but it shouldn't be soul crushing to you. Do you see what I'm saying? That's called codependency. You know that's all the way back in the you know, all the way back in the 80s, showing my age. Um. But anyway, that's, you know, so there's ways to make things, there's ways to make things too important to you. Um, I ran to parishioners, you know. Oh, you know, because every, every time you're a priest and you run into parishioners outside the church, the first thing you hear is, oh, I'm sorry, I don't make it to church. Um, right, don't say, by the way, if you're here, don't say that to me, like, I, I get it. You know, like, I mean, you should be in church. I mean, you should be in church. Um, but like, it's just like, yeah, you have different priorities. I'm just gonna tell you, yeah, you, your priorities are out of order. Love you. Um, I do. Honestly, though, it's, like, it's gotten to a point where it's like, yeah, you should be, though, but I love you, um, and I can't wait to see you. I really do. I'm not going to, like, I ain't got time for that. Um, but, the, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, where's I going with this? Oh, but, you know, so it's like, oh, well, my kid has gymnastics on Sunday morning, so I can't make it to church. It's like, okay, just be honest with yourself about what you're prioritizing, right? Like, just be honest with yourself. If you prioritize a walk on the beach on Sunday mornings over going to church, okay, I can't make that decision for you. I am not your God, right? But just be honest with yourself. Do y'all you you hear what I'm saying? Uh, there's all sorts of things we elevate. If you really wanna get into this, um, there's a whole bunch of church fathers who have done counterfeit gods all the way back to you know, the, first, second, the second century, or just read Tim Keller's book. That's the latest version of a long train of thought. Um, but just right, like be careful about what your thoughts and your hearts and your hopes and your fears surround. Um, be attentive. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Oh, and by the way, sorry, one more thing. God is a jealous God, and people don't like the idea that God is a jealous God because that sounds petty and small. Right, you guys hearing me? What does it mean that God is jealous? If my wife goes on a date with another man is it, is it right for me to be jealous? Yeah. Yes, right? That's, a, that's, jealousy is not always unhealthy. Sometimes there's a healthy jealousy that says, no, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? There's a healthy godly jealousy and God exhibits a godly jealousy for his people. It's not petty, it's not small. Those are his people. Do you guys hear me when I say that? Jealousy is not always, je- jealousy is not always wrong. You have to contextualize it. Sometimes it is but sometimes it's not. Um, And then as far as the visiting iniquity to third and fourth versus blessing thousands, there's a lot of ways to look at that. One, you could say um, visiting iniquity is um, that he's just punishing people who aren't culpable. A better way to look at that is cycles of sin, right? A lot of times you realize your parents weren't exactly perfect and there's things that you have to work out in your own life and then your kids will do that too, but there's, there's still struggles, right? And there's some things that are genetic. Alcoholism is a, is a genetic, you know, there's a genetic tendency to that. That's a generational issue, right? And now we're getting into the world of epigenetics. Look that up. It's crazy. Because you can actually turn off or turn on the genes that you pass on to your kids. The genes are there, but you can actually, by your behavior, change, um, change how that affects them. That's nuts. Somebody who an, has an alcoholic gene who does not imbibe, um, can actually make their child more resistant to alcohol while having the alcohol gene. Look it up, it's crazy. We're just getting into this field, like maybe it's like, what, Dr. Large, do you know? You're gonna correct me? We'll talk after. No. No. All right. Um, I just think it's frightening. Yeah. Because especially if you can find somebody who will do that. Yeah, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, to talk about Pandora's box. All right, I got, um, let's end this. Okay, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know the Jewish people don't actually say the name of God out loud, nor will they write it. And even when they're writing God or typing it, they'll do G space D, because they're so concerned about taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't think, that's a, I don't think it's a bad concept um, to be very careful that you don't use God's name flippantly. The typical interpretation here is that you don't make promises you, invoking God's name, that's how people typically see it. But it's also, you know, so don't swear something by God, but also just be careful with how you use God's name. Um, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We do, we, I am a Sabbath, uh, we as Christians do have a Sabbath. In fact, it's the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. And that, that was since the beginning of like Jesus' return was on the Lord's Day and from then on, Sunday was established. It's not that Sunday is a new thing that was established by, there's some Seventh-day Adventists who say, well, it should be, you know, Saturday. The, Jesus came back on the Lord's Day and the first, like the apostles established Sunday. As, you, do you see what I'm saying? So, they're, I'm generalizing here, typically very devout people, but they're wrong. Um, honor your father and mother, so that may it go well with you. Last thing I'll talk about is this. Bearing false witness and coveting uh, bearing false witness, like, that's a specific way of saying lying, right? Yes. And remember how I spoke about it's good to extrapolate from these and say, well, how else can this apply? And honesty is a big part of that. Don't look at this and say, well, I can lie as long as I'm not lying by bearing false witness, right? Like we all read this and we, that should be clear to us until you're trying to justify yourself. And the last thing is coveting. Um, coveting is not bad. Coveting something that belongs to somebody else is bad. The commandment is not do not covet. It is do not covet something that is not yours or that cannot or should not be yours. If you want, um, like like there are some things that it's really good to want. You should covet a relationship with God. That's a good thing to want. You know, that's something that you have, you don't have a right to, but he's given you access to. Do you hear what I'm saying? So don't read. So some people like to abbreviate the Ten Commandments. You know, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. Just pay close attention. Sorry, guys. I I could have gone for another hour, but I want to respect your time. Um, if you have more questions, uh, ask Father Chris next week, and I get to duck them all. So, anyway, uh, let's pray. Yeah. Let's pray, let's close out with prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you once again for this time. Um, God, I pray that your commandments would continue to resonate with our hearts, that it would cause us to be introspective about the way in which we behave. And God, that we would not seek to justify our behavior, but would seek those in our community, humble ourselves, and ask where you can point out our flaws, that we might work on them based on the rule of life that you have given us. Um, God, based on the laws that you have laid down for our good. And help us to always see your commandments as those which are set aside for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you have enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.